Well, welcome. Glad that you are here. Welcome to Trinity. It's good to be able to gather together and to sing and to pray and to hear the word. Remind us, try to remind us each week that it is good for us to do this. And we're not just simply checking off something and going about our day, but we're actually participating in what God has rescued us to. And that is into a family of God in his presence for his glory and for our good. This morning we're going to continue our Advent series by looking at peace from the conflict. Earlier this week I was sitting at a traffic light. The second vehicle in a line waiting to turn left. The green arrow kicked on and the car in front of me didn't move in that split second. In fact, it was probably a whole second, maybe a whole second and a half before it moved. Well, it wasn't fast enough for the car that was behind me, the third car in the line. And that guy laid on his horn and began gesturing his disapproval of waiting. Well, this caused the guy in front of me that was turning, the first car that finally started to move, you know, after that second and a half, uh, it caused him to hit his brakes. And he started to gesture toward me, as if I was the initial honking one. And, and so more honks started happening all around in one of those, boy, that escalated quickly kind of moments. I did think about gesturing back uh, to the guy in front of me to say and signal, I wasn't the one honking, it was the guy behind me, but I'm not very good at charades, and I didn't think that that situation was the most helpful uh, kind of situation to be gesturing in. It was fraught with misinterpretation. Doesn't it seem like we live in a time when tension and conflicts are so easily triggered? Not just the world around us, but more importantly, our hearts within us. Don't we feel like the third car in line sometimes? Or maybe because of the things that are happening around us, we feel like the first car in mind. We're going to hit the brakes and let everybody know, no, 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 no. And sometimes we're the second car and all this is happening around us and to us and we get sort of like enveloped into it. It's no mystery that there is a lot of conflict in this life. There isn't. There isn't. There's strife and disorder all around, and there's strife and disorder within. We have all seen and read reports or saw news uh, reports on the rising and escalating needs around mental health. And we have seen the death of public discourse skewered by the barking of polarized views. There's conflict of all kinds in this world and in our own hearts. And sometimes it feels like the world is a carbonated beverage in the hands of a toddler. It's all shook up and pent up and ready to explode. And if we're honest, sometimes that can describe our own hearts and our own minds too. We need peace. We need peace from such conflict. And and you know what? The Bible talks a whole lot about peace but talks about peace in a way that's even bigger than what we're longing for, for our world and in our hearts. So this morning, briefly, I just want us to be encouraged by the kind of the peace that the Bible is offering and holding out to us, kind of peace that's secured by Christ, that we can go about experiencing this sort of peace, experiencing peace from the conflict that we feel around us and in us. And I want to just talk about that peace 
in three ways by kind of answering three questions as we move through it. What is peace? What is peace? Where do we find such peace? And what is this peace like? So what is peace? Where do we find such peace? And what is peace like? What is it like? So first, what is peace? Well, very superficially, we can say that peace is, is on one level just the absence of conflict. The absence of conflict. And, and at the first glance, that, that kind of is a simple answer. It, but it means something deep and profound, even though it's often deployed in a shallower way. Sometimes we, we just want the absence of conflict. We, we're tired of fighting or wanting the con- and we want the conflict to stop. So we go about compromising because we, we, just, we can't handle the presence of conflict in our lives. And we can have an, a fear and an aversion to conflict that we do whatever we can to make peace, even taking responsibility that others should be taking. Because we have such a, a, a fear of conflict that we take on more than what we should. Or maybe we try to control things in our lives in such a way to attain whatever good life uh, we have been pursuing. So peace is keeping things in control. And so we spend all our energy and our efforts to keep things in control so that we feel like everything is in its proper place, thereby giving us a sense of peace. Ironic thing is that while we endeavor to control the things outside of us, those endeavors are only revealing a lack of, uh, an out of control, excuse me, going on inside as we labor and labor and labor and never cease. So on one level, yes, peace is the absence of conflict, but the Bible uses the word peace in a much more broad and expansive way. There's a greater scope in mind when the Bible uses the word peace. It does include the absence of conflict, but its intended goal in the use of the word peace is ultimately to be seen and understood in the idea of wholeness or well-being or soundness. So yes, that implies an absence of conflict, anything that would be disrupting or distracting or discouraging away from having well-being or wholeness or soundness. But the Bible is, is targeting that. It's, it's, it is including an absence of conflict, conflict but in, in, in a way that's so much more. It's a restoration of wholeness. A restoration of wholeness. So to understand how the Bible uses the idea and the word peace to be a restoration of wholeness, we, we need to then understand something incredibly uncomfortable. And that is sin. To understand peace, we need to understand sin. To understand how the Bible is, is, is working toward and bringing us into understanding and experience peace, we need to understand sin. So simply put, sin is the rejection and rebellion against God. It is rejection of and rebellion against God, his worth, his works, his ways, his word. Sin is in thought, it's in heart, it's in motive, it's in attitude, it's in action. Sin is saying God isn't worthy and God isn't worth it. Sin broke peace and created conflict. 
And this conflict is with God, it's within self, and it's within the world. So if we want to understand peace, a restoration of wholeness, then we need to know and recognize that sin broke peace, created conflict, conflict with God, within self, and within the world. Speaking to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, God said these words, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. We see the consequences of sin happening in Genesis chapter 3 and the pages that follow, in the pages of history. And in light of the, the consequences that come, in light of sin, we see this word enmity. Enmity, not a word that we necessarily use. So what is being said here? The idea of enmity is to be actively opposed to someone. It's actually, it even carries with it a deep-rooted hate. So the consequence of sin is that enmity now is in creation. Enmity is now existing between us and God. Enmity is now sort of percolating in our hearts. Enmity is experienced in this life and in this world. An actively opposition to others, a deep-rooted hate. This is the consequence of sin. So if we want to understand how the Bible is speaking and working to and moving toward peace, a restoration of wholeness, then we need to know what the problem is, and the problem is sin. With God, we have enmity with God. James 4.4 puts it bluntly. Do you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? To say that the world is worthy and worth it is to then be actively opposing God. To have a deep-rooted hate toward God by embracing the world and saying this is the way of life. That is a consequence of sin. It is brought out because of sin. And then that happens in our hearts. It comes out of our lives. But, but there's something that's going on in us when that sort of enmity is ruling the day, if you will. When that sort of conflict is, is perpetually residing, all shook up, carbonated and pent up, ready to explode out. So when that is resting in our hearts, where we are actively opposing God, living in light of that, we experience what we see sort of play out in Psalm 38. Within self, we find enmity and, and its consequences and, and what it's doing on the inside. See if any of these words are relatable for you. Psalm 38, verses 3 and 4. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. No soundness. That means no, no peace. There's no well-being. There's no wholeness. There's no peace. Because, because enmity is like dragging around a heavy burden that's too hard, too heavy, too harsh for us to carry. It wears away on the inside out. Psalm 38 continues. Verse 8 says, I am feeble and crushed. I groan. Because of the tumult of my heart. It's all kicked up on the inside. It's crushing and tumultuous. It, to live in this conflict or to live out this conflict. To, to live in enmity and to live out enmity. To live in sin and, and, and to live out sin. It's just this crushing, tumultuous experience. Wearing us away on the inside. There's nothing about it that is healthy or whole or sound. It's, it's just constant chaotic um, noise that's spastic in our, in our heads and in our hearts and shows up in our lives. 
Psalm 38 continues. Verses 9 through 11. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. And my nearest kin stand far off. And the, the ongoing consequences of such strife and conflict in our hearts and in our souls is that we begin to experience the devastation of, of longing and isolation. That doesn't explain all that is happening in our world today and why uh, mental health issues have continued to rise, but it does explain some of it. There are other reasons that contribute to the rising concern of internal conflict. Don't hear me wrong, but some of those reasons are this, our own sin. Our own sin. That conflict is in, within. And and there's a time I'm sure many of you have probably longed for wholeness and soundness and well-being of soul and of heart. You can relate to Psalm 38. But we also know that it's within the world. The world around us is not impervious to such conflict. I mean, Romans 8 walks us through that. What we find in this life that we have is that even creation is groaning. Uh, Romans 8, 19 to 22, uh, a couple of, of, of verses within that block of verses. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I mean, creation groans under conflict. I don't know what all that specifically means other than like things are not as it should be. Things are not as it should be. Romans 8.23 goes on to say, not only creation, but we ourselves. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. We're still groaning, even though we've, say, been, in this context in Romans 8, it's speaking about believers who, have been trust, who trust in Jesus for salvation. We still groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of the Son, the redemption of our bodies. We're, we're groaning for the completion of that restoration of wholeness and well-being. And so we're, we're still experiencing in this in-between just the, the consequences of conflict and enmity. We feel it. Even though we're trusting Jesus and, and li- loving Jesus and following Jesus, we still feel it. And then, not only the world around us is groaning, and we're groaning, but the Spirit is groaning. The Spirit is groaning. Romans eight twenty six. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I mean, Advent, we celebrate that God is with us, and indeed, God is with us. Emmanuel, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, took on humanity, but now the Spirit is with us, in us, and at work in us. God is still with us, and, and God is groaning for that day. And the fullness and the completion of peace is fully known. Our need for peace is apparent. It's apparent. We, we don't really have to look far outside of ourselves, but even when we do, we see it everywhere. At red lights, when you're getting ready to turn left, our need for peace is apparent. Our avenue for peace, though, 
is singular. We don't have to look far to see copious amounts of needs and reasons why we need peace. But there is only one avenue. Where do we find such peace? Where do we find such peace? Where do we find a restoration of wholeness? Where do we find the restoration of well-being? Where do we find the restoration of soundness? Well, we find it in centralized and, and focused in on the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is our means of peace because he fulfills God's promise of peace. Jesus is our means of peace. What we heard earlier, or well, a portion of what uh, we heard earlier, we'll, we'll hear it again in a moment, but right before those verses, uh, we see this promise given. In verses 2 and 3 of Isaiah 9, Again, just kind of reminding us of this context that we're in. We're in a, in, a, in a darkness, but yet hope is now dawned. In verses 2 and 3, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. There's a, a promise in these verses that... A promise of restoration, of wholeness, and of well-being. There will be a day, these verses are telling us, in which this is experienced. And then in verses 4 and 5, Isaiah 9, we see what, go, what happens to bring about this day. For the yoke of his burden and the staff uh, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. All sources of conflict will be dealt with fully, finally, and with forever consequences. That God would come and bring about this restoration, and in that bringing about of restoration will bring an end of the conflict. Will bring an end of the conflict. So this promise is incredible. It's announced here. In Isaiah 9. And then our verses that we heard uh, earlier in our service. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. There will be no end to the restoration of wholeness and well-being and soundness. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So this promise that's announced in Isaiah 9 will be the, a forever joy, the, the removal of conflicts, and it will be done by God himself. God himself will come and bring such peace. So it's promised in the Old Testament. Then we find it announced in the New Testament the arrival of it announced, and that's what uh, one of the things that we celebrate in Advent. So last week we celebrated hope, and this week we're celebrating peace, the arrival of our means of peace. Verses 13 and 14 of Luke chapter 2 is the announcement that it, this, the means of peace, the one who was promised in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, that one is here now. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the high. And on earth, peace among, with those, among those with whom he is pleased. All that Isaiah 9 pointed to is now here in this baby born. The means of peace has arrived. 
the New Testament continues. So not only is the Old Testament promising it, and the New Testament is announcing it, but we also see in the New Testament it being fulfilled. Uh, I love Colossians 1, 19 and 20. In our Trinity class, in the hour before our service, we referenced these verses. They're the Christmas, Easter, all sort of summarized in these two verses. But listen to this. For in him, that's in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Christmas. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Easter. Jesus satisfies all that is needed to end the conflict. He does it in his life, his death and resurrection. The enmity we had with God. Jesus deals with it. He brings an end to the conflict. And he brings about the restoration of wholeness and well-being and soundness with God. And then that gets applied to our lives. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ, trusting Jesus alone for salvation, do we then have this peace? Sometimes we feel like we have to do something more than that. If you are at odds with somebody in your life, you feel like you have to make that up. Maybe it's a a spouse or one of your kids or a friend or or, or just a coworker or something. There's a a wrong that has occurred on on whatever level of wrongness, but a wrong that has occurred in you. There's an an aspect of that where you feel like you have to do something to make up for that wrongness. Here, we have wronged against God in thought and attitude and word and deed. And God has not said, you have to do X, Y, and Z to make up for this. God said, I'm doing all the X, all the Y, all the Z. You trust in me. That's hard. It's hard. Hard to take and accept. Sounds too good to be true. Yeah, this is the nature and character of our God. There's a book, and the, the title of the book is fascinating, and I commend it to you, written by a guy named Alan Noble. The book is called On Getting Out of Bed, The Burden and Gift of Living. On Getting Out of Bed. He says this in there. Sometimes that's what peace is, an action based on faith and not an emotional state. Sometimes we face life, and, and its conflicts are heavy and hard. And harsh, and sometimes we feel very far from peace. And yet the promise and the announcement and the fulfillment and the application of all that God would do to secure our peace with him is objectively true. And we, we announce it in the gospel and we say the response to such incredibly objectively true news is that you put your faith and your trust in that. And there may be seasons in our lives on this side of glory in which our experience of peace is just simply an action based on faith and not an emotional state. One day, the reasons for the distance and feeling peace will be no more when Christ returns in his second advent and wipes away all of the reasons for conflict from anywhere and everywhere. No longer will there be the shadows of it. Just the enjoyment of this forever peace 
that Jesus has secured for us. So, what is peace? It's more than just simply the absence of conflict. It is the restoration of wholeness, of well-being, and of soundness. Where do we find this peace? We find it in Jesus, who brought an end to the conflict through his life, death, and resurrection, and by trusting in him through faith, knowing that he alone is our means of salvation. And then what is this peace like that we will experience in our lives? In increasing measure, and ups and downs, and through it all, what is this peace like? Well, I want to walk through just a few characteristics of peace. First is this. This peace is personal. It is personal. And what I mean by that, it's personal to God. Thereby, it's personally experienced by his people. Ephesians 2.14 says something in an important context, but I don't want you to lose sight of a very important um, description here. It says, for he, Jesus, himself is our peace. He himself. It is God personally invested in, in the means by which we have peace with him. Not an emissary of God, not someone else that God sent to do this, but God himself cares so much about restoring peace with his people that he himself came to do it. He himself is the means for it. So when I say it's personal, yes, my hope is that you personally experience, but what I want you to realize is that it's personal for God, that he cares that much about it. It's personally invested in it. He is personally invested in it. Secondly, characteristic of this piece is that it is practical. It's practical. It is the practical outworking of God in our lives. Maybe many of you have Philippians 4, 7 underlined and highlighted in your Bible. Maybe you have it uh, etched in your head and in your heart. And it's this. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's wonderfully practical, this peace, even if it doesn't make any sense, even if it goes beyond understanding. God is practically working in the lives of his people to help guard their hearts and their minds. Knowing that he has secured our restoration of wholeness and soundness and well-being with him. Thirdly, in light of the world around us, The reality that life is hard and evil is real. We need to be reminded again that the peace that God has for us, this restoration that he is securing for us, it's not only personal and practical, but it is powerful. And maybe maybe it's just the hope of that reality that it gives us strength to endure in our days. I love what is said in Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And that's a servant unto itself. And I'll need to move on because I want to get into that. (laughs) But the God of peace, the God of bringing about the end of the conflict and restoring the wholeness and soundness and well-being of his people and of his creation, of the cosmos, of everything, will crush Satan and evil and death and sin under our feet as if we did it because he's done it for us. 
the means of our peace. It's powerful. It's personal for God. It's practical in our lives. It's powerful. And then lastly, it's permanent. It's forever. It's forever because God secured it. It's not conditional on us. It's conditional on the character and nature and work of God. It's conditional on the character, nature, and promise and announcement and fulfillment and application of God. This sort of peace that we're talking about, it's all, we're, we're moving all our chips in, we're banking it all on God. In the Old Testament, there's this picture, this promise of it in poetic form in Psalm 8510. It's God bringing an end to the conflict, doing all things right, and bringing about peace. And it's these words, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. God will do it in such a way that it will have forever implications. We see the fulfillment of that at the cross where righteousness and and peace kiss each other, where they meet together, where, where justice and mercy come together at the cross. That the incarnation is taking steps to the crucifixion, where where Jesus would bring an end of our conflict and be the means by which our restoration of wholeness and well-being and soundness would be. And he does it in such a way. He, he puts on display this steadfast love, this faithfulness, this righteousness, this peace, all coming together there at the cross. What is this peace? It is the restoration of well-being wholeness of soundness. Where can we find such peace? We find it in Jesus. What is this like? Well, it is personal, it is practical, it is powerful, and it is permanent. When I was a kid, I'd love to go to amusement parks and or carnivals or state fairs or whatever they are, wherever they are. And, and as a kid, when I was younger, I'd love bumper cars. Yeah? Bumper cars, you remember those things? You get in it, and the whole objective, the whole point of a bumper car is that you want to go crash into somebody else. Like that's the, the everybody is walking on there into that little arena and getting into a little car with the sole intention of crashing into each other. You're not, you, you shouldn't accidentally walk into that and think, oh, I'm just going to kind of mosey along in here. Your expectation would be totally upended by the four-year-old who's, looking at you with murderous intent uh, with, behind his little bumper car. Seems like we live in a day and age where the world around us thinks that life is bumper cars. Now, the whole point of it is that we go about crashing into each other. And we feel this anxious pull in our own hearts to, to, to jump into that foray, that that we may even feel that in our own heads, in our own hearts. Sometimes we feel like we are the bumper car arena in and of ourselves. And we feel this just chaotic conflict always happening. Let's take care to, to read what was promised here. That God was going to bring about our peace. Let's take care to hear what was announced The means of our peace is now here. Let's take care to see what was fulfilled in Jesus, in his life, his death, his resurrection. Let's take care to embrace what has been given, what has been supplied, embracing it through faith. 
to embrace this peace from the Prince of Peace. Let's not lose sight. Let's hold on. Let's make much of that this peace is personal to God. It's practical in our lives. It's powerful in this world, and it is permanent. So as we feel sort of the chaotic pressures of this point of the calendar in which it feels like everything is busy and everyone is mad, let us remember that God's heart is about the restoration of peace with his people. And we can know that and experience that and live in light of it. To his glory and to our good and to the good of others. Even when it takes them 1.5 seconds to turn left. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us to live in light of the peace that you have secured for us. That you would restore to our hearts the joy of our salvation. You would restore to us the joy of knowing this peace knowing the restoration of wholeness and well-being and soundness to you. And God, for those of us in here who, who struggle with things that are anxious or heavy in our hearts and our minds, who feel that daily battle, God, I pray that you would, in the midst of that struggle, help those of us to know and experience, to read and to see, to hear, to embrace means of peace person of Jesus. That the powerful presence of the Spirit would bear fruit. The kind of fruit helps us know that peace and increasing. So whether there is turmoil within or without, would you help us be the means of peace in Christ? You equip us and enable us to live in light of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.